please turn your Bibles to Judges, Judges chapter 7. We're continuing to make our way through uh, an overview of Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. And here we are in Judges talking about the, the need for a king. And I encourage you to be reading through Judges on your own during the week because we don't have the, the time to read every verse in the sections that we'll be covering. So we're going to be in uh, Judges 6 and 7 this morning. Next week we'll be, Lord willing, looking at Judges 8, and the week after that, Judges 9, I believe. And so you can kind of be re- reading ahead on that. So in Judges chapter 6, we encounter the call of Gideon. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. But let's, uh, let's read probably one of the most uh, famous stories from the book of Judges as we read about Gideon in, in Judges chapter 7. And so if you would stand with me, if you're able to, in honor of God, as we read his word together. And I'll begin in verse 1. Then Jerubel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink, to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you. And give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go, every man to his home. And so the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Verse 9, that same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled in the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell down and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. His companion answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. 
And he divided 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me shall then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. You may be seated. May God encourage us through the reading of his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we would ask for your continued special grace upon us. We thank you for your mighty works, your wondrous deeds, your kindness towards us, and we pray that that would extend in just the the moments that are upcoming as we look at your word together. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. When we say that we, we need God, what do we mean? Some people would, would, of course, deny that we need God. I was reading an article this, this past week by an atheist on CNN.com, and he, he was talking about how, how we don't need God. In fact, the title of the article is Why We Don't Need God. And uh, his argument was that by saying that we need God, we're relying upon someone else, someone outside of us. And what we really need to recognize is that, that we need to save ourselves. And so that was his argument, we don't need God. But For those of us who are Christians, I I can't imagine that any of us who would claim to be Christians would say we don't need God. But when we say we need God, what do we mean? Some would say, well, I I need God like at at certain points. You know, there's there's this a a time of trouble that I'm in and I I need God. Or when it comes to salvation, I I need God to do the the majority of the work that I can't do. I need God to do 90% or or 99% and and I'll do the the stuff that I'm responsible for, but I, I need God in that sense. But still others of us would say, and I I would put myself in this category, that our need for God goes far deeper than that. That our need for God is is far more profound. When I say that I need God, I don't just mean I I need Him for a moment or or, or for a, a period of time or to do 99% of the work for me, I, I, my need for God extends to all areas of my life. There, there's no aspect in which I can't say that I, I don't need God's sustaining grace to, to, to keep me alive, to enable me to do the things that he's called me to do. My, my need for God is, is in many ways, you use the word infinite. When it comes for, to salvation, for example, I needed God in eternity past to, to plan my salvation. I needed God to, to, to choose. I needed God to, to enter into to humanity, to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for my sins, to secure my salvation, to, to raise from the dead. And then I needed God to, to intervene in, in my life to save me. Remember uh, Tony, when he was praying here just a few minutes ago, he said that only God can can take a dead heart and make it alive again. I, I needed that. Apart from God's divine intervention in that sense, I had no hope of entering into relationship with him. Now, some have called that, that belief that we need God in that way, from eternity past and in the present, to, to, to make us alive. Some have called that, that belief Calvinism. That's kind of a word that, that's used sometimes to describe that understanding in of, of needing God. I, I tend not to use the word Calvinism uh, a lot of times because it's a, a word that just has so much misunderstanding whenever you use it. In fact, when I was in college, I was kind of struggling with some of the issues of, of Calvinism, and I worked at a Christian bookstore, 
And so they, they let us check out books from the bookstore, which is one of my favorite things about working there. And I, so I, I checked out a book one time by R.C. Sproul, because I was just like, these Calvinists, what did they believe? And it was called Chosen by God. And I, I, I think I eventually bought the book. I hope I bought the book, because it's on my bookshelf. <laughs> I'm just thinking about this. I'm sure, I'm sure I bought the book. So let me make a note real quick here. Um, no, it's called Chosen by God. And, and he talks about, in the book, he, he talked about how um, some people misunderstand Calvinism, that word Calvinism. He, he talked about how one student one time uh, told the professor, said, I'm not a Calvinist because I don't believe that God drags people to heaven kicking and screaming and doesn't allow people who desperately want to go to heaven through faith in Jesus, he, he doesn't allow them to enter to heaven. And I, I thought that was interesting because I thought, like, well, that's kind of what I thought Calvinists believe. And here's this guy saying that's, that's not what Calvinists believe. And I said that, I, I, that seemed wrong to me just by experience. I mean, think about the, for those of you here, were here earlier for the testimonies. You know, Twelve people gave their testimonies, and not one of them earlier said, you know what, I really don't want to be here. Um, you know, God ordained me and chose me and has, has forced me to become a Christian. I'm not really excited about it, but here I am. And that didn't happen this morning, right? Sproul goes on uh, to, to talk about in his, his, this book, Chosen by God. He says, well, here's, he says, here, here's what uh, he did. Is he was talking to a group of students one time. He said, I was uh, talking to a group of 25 students, and I asked them how many of them would consider themselves uh, Calvinists or how many would consider themselves those who believe in predestination. And he said only one student raised uh, his hand in the class. He said, okay, that, that's, that's interesting. And then he began teaching and going through each day, kind of talking in the course. The first section of the course was on uh, what we call total depravity. And, and total depravity doesn't mean we, we do every bad thing we could possibly imagine, but that we're, we're totally affected by sin. There's no, use the word radical corruption, the phrase radical corruption to describe what's true of us. There's no facet of our being, no facet of my life that's not affected by the fall and by my, my sinful nature. My, my mind is affected. My heart is affected. My emotions are affected. My, my intellect, my, my uh, physical body, there's no aspect of my being that isn't somehow affected by the fall. He said, okay, this, he said, he, walked through all that with all the students and said, now, how many of you guys agree with that? How many of you agree that we are radically corrupt? And 25 out of 25 hands went up. He says, okay, you're in danger <laughs> because once you, once you confess that, the dominoes start to fall. Now, this morning, we're not going to talk about predestination and election and so forth, but, but we are going to talk about radical corruption, total depravity. And what we're going to see as we look at this passage is that our, our need for God is, is infinite. We need God, not just in a small way, but we need God profoundly. There, there's no area of our life in which we don't need God because of who we are and because of what the Bible teaches about who God is. We recognize, we acknowledge that apart from God's divine intervention in our lives, we have no hope of entering into relationship with him. We need God desperately. In fact, here's the, the big idea that I want us to think about this morning as we look at the story in Judges. God is infinitely more committed to your salvation than you were or are or ever will be. How many of, uh, how many, how many of you uh, younger 
uh, students have uh, your notebook this morning, okay? This is, this is what you write in that note. Maybe some of you are just keeping notes and the, the notes that we give to the grown-ups too. This is what you, you write in there if you're keeping notes this morning. God is infinitely more committed to your salvation than you were or are or ever will be. What does that mean? It means that God is committed to our, our salvation. And if, if, if for, for kids who are, you know, you know the word infinite, right? If, if you're committed to your salvation this much, God, the difference between your commitment to your salvation and God's commitment to your salvation is, is infinite. God's infinitely, there's no limit to how much more God is committed to your salvation than you. Than you were in the past, than you are in the present, than you will be in the future. And that's good news. In fact, as we're going to look at this story in Judges, we're going to see, remember the book of Judges is about our need for a king. And over and over again in Judges, we see these judges who don't have the ability to save people the way that they need to be saved, ultimately heart transformation. So the book of Judges continues and continues and continues to point us for a need for an, an ultimate king that points us to the, the Davidic king, that points us to Jesus Christ. And as we see God entering into the story, we see that this this human king, this human judge, this human leader isn't able to secure the salvation that the people need. There needs to be a future king. God enters into the story and provides the salvation. So we're going to look at four reasons. Again, students, if you're t- taking notes, can you kind of write these, these four reasons why we need God, four reasons in which we, four ways in which we see God committed to our salvation more than we ever are or were or could be. And here's the first thing that we see we need God for. Number one, we need God to persuade us of his goodness and salvation. Turn back to Judges 6. We'll begin the the story and kind of talk about some things there. Now, think about this statement. We need God to persuade us of his goodness and salvation. When I I wrote that sentence down, I, I kind of cringed because it seems like such a terrible thing to admit, right? Uh, my mom is, is here this, this weekend uh, kind of celebrating our uh, daughter getting baptized. We're very grateful for her being here. But imagine if you came up to me and you said, uh, Daniel, how was, uh, how was your home life? How, how kind was your mom growing up? Was she a good mom? And I said, yeah, you know, I, I think so. Yeah, sure. You know, just kind of half, half-heartedly, right? And then you talked to my mom, and you found out all the, the terrible things that I did as a young boy and teenager, and in my 20s. But uh, you talk about all these, t- and you say, well, what did you do in response to that, Carol? And she begins to tell you all the things that she did. And, and as you hear her talk about her, her as a, a mother, you think, well, that Daniel, what a monster. What a monster not to realize the goodness of his mom, right? And the same is, is true for us, right, as, as we think about our relationship with God. How is it possible that as we think about the infinite goodness that God has shown us that we could ever doubt it? And the answer is, in one sense, easy because of our sinfulness, because of our, our fallen condition. Our natural inclination is to deny the goodness or to doubt the goodness of God or to create a, a different God in, in line with our definition of what goodness is. I was reading something that a, a local pastor wrote recently, and this, this, this pastor, I believe, is, is apostate. He's, he's left the faith, and he was talking about how he, um, he, he was talking about some songs that he sings about God's salvation. He says, I used to think, as I, as I sung those songs, it's, it's a pastor who is just kind of given full into immorality. He says, I used to think, as I sang those songs, uh, God, please save me from sin. 
But now as I sing those songs, I realize that God has saved me from feeling bad about myself, right? What, what a horrible understanding, but it's an, it's an idol. As we think about God's goodness, we either deny it or we create in our natural tendency a, a different God that we can call good. Now look at what happens here in the text, and we see God's persuasion of his goodness and his persuasion of his salvation. Remember this, the cycle that exists in the book of Judges, sin, servitude, salvation, sin in verse 1 of chapter 6. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then comes servitude in verses, uh, the last part of verse 1 all the way through verse 6. There's the people of Midian and these, these Midianites in combination with some other groups there, kind of they're, they're nomadic, semi-nomadic people. They come up from the desert, the text tells us, and they, they raid Israel every year. It's like that scene in the movie Bugs Life where every year the locusts come and they, or grasshoppers come and they they, they take the ants' food. That's what these Midianites are doing. Every year they, they come and they, like locusts, just kind of grab all of Israel's stuff, their, their food, and the regions in which they're, they're terrorizing the people. And so he talks about the servitude that exists, and it says that they're, uh, they're, they, they, they plant the crops and these people come. They leave no sustenance, verse 4 tells us, no sheep, ox, donkey, uh, they become like locusts in numbers. Chapter 7 says, says the same thing. And Israel, verse 6, was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Then the text tells us, this is something that hasn't happened in previous stories, but then the text tells us that the people cry out and the Lord sends a prophet, and the prophet says, look, what's happening is exactly what God said would happen because of your sin. This is the land that God brought you to, and what you're experiencing, essentially what the prophet is saying, is right in line with what God said would happen in Deuteronomy 28, the, the curse in Deuteronomy 28. And then we come to verse 11, and the story cuts to the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord, as we've talked about before in Judges and Joshua, refers, we believe, to God himself based upon how this angel functions and his authority. He's in this area, he comes to this area that's in the north again, south of the Sea of Galilee, and he comes to this guy, Gideon. And Gideon is beating out grain in a wine press. He's trying to, to keep the Midianites from, from seeing what he's doing. He doesn't want to draw attention by being in an exposed area. And the Lord greets him, and he says something rather astonishing. He says in verse 7, uh, sorry, verse 12, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now that last half of the phrase, O mighty man of valor, is going to seem uh, almost sarcastic as we see how weak Gideon is. It's, it's probably talking about how Gideon with God can be a man of valor, or perhaps it's a, a word of encouragement. But most importantly, look what he says. He says, the, the Lord is with you. Now that expression, the Lord is with you, is an expression that is profoundly theological. As we think about Scripture, l listen to what we see whenever God says that he's, he's with us. In Exodus chapter 3, for example, Moses is, and by the way, there's, there's some great parallels between Moses' call in the book of Exodus and Gideon's call here, and I think Gideon realizes maybe some of that. But in Exodus chapter 3, Moses is doubting God's call of him, and God says, but... I will be with you. And he gives him a sign. Joshua 1.5, 
God tells Joshua, just as I was with Moses, so I will, I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. To Jacob, God says in Genesis 28, I'm with you. I will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. In Psalm 23, later in God's revelation, he'll say, even uh, as the psalmist will declare, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for what? You're with me. Isaiah 43, verse 5, God says, Fear not, for I'm with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. Earlier in verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. And later Jesus will say in Matthew 28, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you, even to the end of the age. When God declares that he is with his people, he is saying something profoundly theological. I, as Yahweh God, am, am with you. I'm, I'm good. I'm going to do good things to you. The things that I've promised to do to you, I will complete. It's a profound statement for God to make. And Gideon says, eh, I don't know. Look how he replies. If that's true, then why has all this happened to us? Where are his wondrous deeds that our father recounted as saying, did not the Lord bring us from Egypt? But now, and instead of saying the Lord is with us, he says the Lord has forsaken us. Now Gideon finds himself exactly where God said his people would be. He told them in Deuteronomy, look, I'm, I'm going to allow these things to happen to you by my, my sovereign hand to bring you back to me, to bring you back to obedience. He sent a prophet saying, look, where you are right now is exactly where God said you would be. God's presence is here, even in the midst of this servitude. And Gideon says, I don't know. How can I know? I, 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 doubt, your good, I doubt God's, I doubt Yahweh's goodness. I doubt his presence. I doubt his salvation. It's a terrible thing to say. And yet God is gracious. In fact, it's almost like the Lord doesn't even hear him. He says, now, go in this might of yours. Again, it sounds sarcastic. I think it's encouraging. And save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do, I, do not I send you? How can I save Israel, says Gideon? My, my, I'm weak. My clan is weak. I'm the least. The Lord says, I will be with you. And then Gideon wants a sign. He wants a sign. And so he takes some food, he gives it to this, this angel of the Lord, and the, the, the rock, fire comes up from it, it consumes it. It's, it's the sign that, that God has found the sacrifice favorable. And get this, Gideon misunderstands even that sign. He says, oh, I'm about to die. And, Gideon says, and God says, no, 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 this is a sign that I'm, I'm with you. Don't fear, you shall not die, he says in verse 23. And then Gideon builds an altar. God continues and continues and continues to persuade Gideon of his goodness and the salvation that he's, that he's going to offer. Gideon's weak, he's ignorant, and apart from God's grace, he cannot grasp the character of God or his kindness to offer salvation now. What's true of us? Apart from God's divine intervention, 
you and I would not be convinced of God's goodness. Because of radical corruption, because of total depravity, we would not be able to understand God's goodness and his salvation. Think about these just just two hugely significant questions. Number one, what would I have found, think about this, what would I have found pleasurable and beautiful if God had not intervened in my life? If God had not radically intervened in my life, what would I find pleasurable and what would I find beautiful? Romans uh, chapter 6, Paul talks about, uh, I think it's in, it's in uh, verse 21, he says, what fruit were you getting at that time? He's talking about before they were believers, before they were Christians. He says, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed for the end of those things is death? What were those things? What would you find pleasurable and beautiful apart from God's divine intervention? And and Paul says, you know, think about the things you used to do. And and each of us, imagine, imagine uh, I I gave Austin the, is that Austin back there? Hey, buddy. Imagine if I gave Austin the thumbs up and he he turned the uh, projector and we started just, we just picked someone at random and just uh, like a highlight reel of the worst things you've ever done, right? We started watching those. And let's say it was you. It fills you with shame even thinking about it, right? Apart from God's divine intervention, imagine imagine whatever that you yelling at someone or the the thoughts that you think or or something you've done, something you've stolen. Imagine that being projected. Those things that you used to find pleasurable, imagine if God had not intervened and you would still say, yeah, that's, that's where I'm going to find pleasure. That's where I'm going to find joy. If God had not intervened and said, no, 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 Here's my salvation, here's my goodness, here's where pleasure and joy is truly found. And you can also ask yourself the question, where would those pleasures have led? If God hadn't divinely intervened and said, no, 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 let me show you my goodness, let me show you where true joy is found. If God hadn't done that and changed your affections, where would those pleasures have led? Proverbs 5 talks about the the, the person who's enticed to adultery. It says, I, and he comes to the realization too late. He says, I'm, I'm at the brink of utter ruin. But not only, not only does God intervene to change our, our understanding of his goodness and to find out where pleasure is, not only to, to prevent us from a road of ruin, but also to allow us to experience the, the path of, of joy and peace. Psalm 61 Verse 5, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Apart from God persuading us, and we'll talk how he, about how he does this, about apart from God divinely intervening and changing our hearts to persuade us that he is good and that salvation is found in him, we would not be able to experience the joy of being found in relationship with him. And we'd miss out on that joy. Whenever our children were, were toddlers, we, we had this, this rule that I think preserved our sanity for, for quite a bit, right? We had this rule that, hey, if you fuss... You, you don't get anything, okay? 
So, uh, you know, we'd, we'd be talking to someone, and, and, so, and a kid, one of our kids would come up, or maybe we're at a party or something, and they say, you know, I want a treat, I want a treat, I want a treat. And da 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 no, Hey, you know what? You know the rule. When, when you fuss, you, you don't get anything. Or maybe it's like a, we're having dinner, and then we have dessert, and we're kind of bringing ice cream out, and, you know, the youngest starts banging on the table. I want mine, I want mine. Hey, you know what? Sorry. You know, you have to hold off now. The younger they were, the, the less time we made them wait. But, you know, you fuss, you don't get what you want, right? But sometimes when we did that, when we, when we weren't able to, to give them something, it was something we wanted to give them, you know? Like, we're all having ice cream at a birthday. But we, we want them to experience the, the joy of that. And yet, uh, apart from heart transformation, the same is true with God and us, apart from heart, trans- heart transformation, we cannot experience the, the joy of giving the things that our Heavenly Father desires to give us. There's this, this scene in uh, The Last Battle by C.S. Lewis, and it's, it's kind of towards the end of the story, and there are these, these dwarves who have been, uh, been uh, they, they think they're in, the, in a tiny stable, but they're actually in this, this beautiful field, and there's a, it's a picture, C.S. Lewis paints a beautiful picture of what a hard heart looks like. There are these dwarves who have convinced themselves and they, that they are in a, a bad place, and they refuse to look around them, and this, this young girl, Lucy, talks to them, and she says, look up. Can't you see? Look around. Can't you see the, the sky and the trees and the flowers? Can't you see me? And the, one of the dwarves responds, hey, we're all blind in the dark. And she tries. She goes, well, if, if you can't see, maybe you can smell. And she takes violets and puts them under the nose of this dwarf. And the dwarf says, none of that. How dare you? What do you mean by shoving a lot of filthy stable litter in my face? There was a thistle in it, too. They're unable to see the, the beauty of the place in which they find themselves because of a, a hard heart of, of unbelief, of stubbornness. The same is true of us. God acts. And apart from his transformative act, we would not be able to grasp his goodness. He allows us to see his beauty. He allows us to see his all-sustaining grace. He saves us and we can be convinced of his goodness, goodness that is infinite. A second thing we need God for, we need God to equip us to be obedient. Apart from God's divine intervention in our lives, we could not be obedient. Look at verses 25 through 40 of chapter 6. God tells Gideon, okay, I need you to, to tear down your father's idol, altar to Baal, the altar that he's that he's for sacrifices for Baal. I need you to take your father's bull, another one, tear down the altar, and then take your dad's bull and offer it as a sacrifice to Yahweh, to the true God, and this new altar to the Lord you're to build. And Gideon is afraid to do this, and so he, he waits until night and then takes ten of his father's servants and does it. And the next morning, the So even that small act of obedience is marked by timidity. The next morning, the people of the town are ready to to kill him. So kind of showing us the canonization of these people. And instead of of having the death penalty for those who would worship false gods, they're willing to kill the person who's willing to worship the true God. And uh, Gideon is saved by the intervention of his father. His father changes his name to Jerubel, that is, let... Baal contend against him. And then uh, God continues to work in Gideon to try to 
procure his obedience. You come down to verse 33, and once again, it's that time of year, the Midianites and Malachites and all the people of the east have come together. They're across the Jordan. They're encamped in the valley of Jezreel. And the Spirit of the Lord, verse 34, clothed Gideon. So God divinely enables Gideon, and Gideon summons the courage now to be obedient, and all the, the people are gathered to him that respond to him, and though the and, and even though that has happened, Gideon, we come to verse 36, Gideon is still timid. He's still weak. Look at verse 36. Gideon said to God, okay, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you've said, I, I'm laying out a fleece. And maybe you've heard this expression before, laying out a fleece. He lays out this fleece of wool on the threshing floor. He says, if there's dew on the fleece alone and it's dry on all the ground, then I'll, I'll know, I'll, I'll, I'll I'll be convinced that you will save Israel by my hand, as you've said. So I've seen your work, you've told me what you're going to do, but now, now I'll really know. And so the Lord in his grace allows that to take place. He rises, he rose early the next morning, verse 38 tells us, he wrung out the dew from the fleece enough to fill a bowl with water. And then Gideon said to the Lord, verse 39, um, let's try this again. Okay. Now, don't get angry, but this time, uh, let the fleece be dry only, and then let all the ground be due. And the Lord did it at night, and then it was, uh, it was dry in the fleece only, verse 40, and all the ground there was due. Now, what's, what's the point there? People sometimes will say, you know what, I'm just going to kind of lay out a fleece and, and see how the Lord directs. Well, just understand, if you're saying I'm, I'm laying out a fleece to see how the Lord directs, what you're saying is, I know what God has told me to do, and I have his confirmed revelation of, in his word about what he wants me to do. I just don't want to do it. And so I'm trying to really make sure, right, before I'm obedient. Now, apart from God intervening, what's true of us? We also wouldn't be able to be obedient to God. We wouldn't even be aware of our disobedience because we suppress the revelation that God has given us. Apart from God intervening and equipping us to be obedient, we would either all be legalists or lawless, lawless people. Lawless people saying, okay, I don't need to be obedient to God in these areas, not feeling the conviction of the Spirit. Or legalists saying, okay, I can, I can have righteousness by myself. But what does God do? God acts. Titus chapter 3, listen to what Paul tells Titus about God's intervention in our lives. This is right in line with the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, about where Jeremiah says that the, 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 this new covenant is going to allow us to know God, not by external means, but, but, but internally. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So here's who we were. This is, this is who we were in and of ourselves, total depravity, radical corruption. We were disobedient to God, disobedient to authority. We were led astray, our, our, our passions and desires ruled us, the things we found pleasurable we didn't resist. But then something happened, verse 4 of Titus 3, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, 
And he saved us. He, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. We can't be righteous. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of, of regeneration, rebirth, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out us, on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on those things that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. How can we be devoted to, God, to good works? We cannot be devoted to good works apart from God divinely intervening. One of the amazing things that I think we see is that as a person is saved by God, their, their, their heart changes in, in radical ways in the areas of, of obedience. You know, we had uh, several young people who were baptized this morning. As I, as I talk with parents, there's kind of a common refrain that I hear from parents of, of young people who become Christians at a young age. They say, you know what, we're not sure of the exact time. You know, we, we prayed a prayer at this, this time, but, you know, they had some doubts later on, so we prayed later, and, you know, there's kind of this, this, this process, but when, when I talk to parents whose children are, are preparing for baptism, a lot of them will say, but, but at some point, their, their, their desire to be obedient, <laughs> not perfect, because, you know, they still have us as parents, but, you know, not perfect, but, but there was a, a radical shift in, in how they responded to correction and desire to walk in obedience. That's not good parenting. That's not radically corrupt persons suddenly changing by their own efforts. It's God's amazing intervention. A third truth to think about, number three, we need God to preserve us in our obedience. We need God to preserve us in our obedience. We read these verses earlier here in Judges, Judges chapter 7, as we see God begin to work his salvation. Now, you know, there's, as people talk about this passage, some people say, okay, um, now, it's very obvious. You have 32,000 people, and 22, you know, who's afraid? 22,000 people leave. You can imagine Gideon being kind of concerned about that. And then you have this, this uh, winnowing even further between the people who are lapping like a dog, those who are bringing the, the water up to their, their mouths while kneeling. And some people have said, well, maybe these people were more watchful. Maybe these people had more courage. Maybe these people were more alert. And, and, and that misses the point of the story, right? The point of the story isn't about the 300 people that were left, how they were better than the 9,700 or the 22,000 before that. What's, what's the point of the story? It's in verse 2 of chapter 7. The people, the Lord says to Gideon, with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand saved me. The point that God wants to make sure that comes through is that, is that he is the one who's bringing about this salvation. And so Gideon, you can imagine Gideon, at this point, God has taken his troops of 32,000 down to 10,000, down to 300, and Gideon is like, boy, I don't, I don't know about this. And God says this to Gideon in uh, verse uh, verse t 11, I'm sorry, verse 10. 
He says, I've given them in your hand, but if you're afraid, go down with your servant. And what does the next verse tell us? Gideon goes down with his servant. He's terrified. And then he hears about this dream, and God uses that circumstance of him overhearing about this dream to confirm that God is going to bring about the salvation that he promised. What does that mean? Apart from God and his intervention, what would be true of us? We would not continue in the faith. If God didn't sustain us in the past and and sustain us in the present and work to sustain us in the future to bring about our final salvation, apart from God's divine intervention, you and I would surely fall. And yet, what does God do? God, in his grace, continues to sustain and preserve. And and at the right time, the right moment, let us hear from a a sister or a brother in Christ giving us encouraging words, allowing them to to speak through the Spirit to our spirit, to allow us to, to continue in the faith and continue in the faith. And God continues to preserve us. Apart from his preserving work, we would fall. This Tuesday, the women are going to be discussing a book by David Mathis called Habits of Grace in the, the Be Ready, or as I pronounce it, Be Ready, uh, Be Ready group on Tuesday, Tuesday morning. And it's, it's, a, it's a great book, uh, Habits of Grace by David Mathis. And I haven't read it, uh, but I've read parts of it. And uh, there's this, this introduction where he talks about, he talks about God's grace and and. The whole book is about the disciplines, the spiritual disciplines that God calls us to. And listen to what Mathis writes. He says, it's, it's in this endless sea of God's grace that we walk the path of the Christian life and we take steps of grace-empowered effort and initiative. In other words, I, I'm continuing to walk in obedience, but as I take this step, as I take this step, as I take the next step, it's not, it's not me just on my own deciding to do that, although of course I'm, I'm making those decisions. It's, it's God in his grace enabling me through a variety of means to walk and continue to walk in obedience. Mathis says, I, I can flip a switch, but, but I'm not the one providing the electricity. I can turn on a faucet, but I don't make the water flow. There will be no light and no liquid refreshment without someone else providing it, and so it is for the Christian with the ongoing grace of God. His grace is essential for our spiritual lives, but we don't control the supply. We can't make the favor of God flow, but he's given us the circuits to connect, the pipes to open expectantly, and these are our paths along which he has promised his favor. Our God is lavish in his grace. He is free to liberally dispense his goodness without even the least bit of cooperation and preparation on your part, and often he does, but he also has his regular channels, and we can routinely avail ourselves of these revealed paths of blessing or we neglect them to our detriment. In other words, here's what I'm saying. When we say, why do we need God? We need God to save us. We need God to to allow us to be obedient, but we need God We have an infinite need for God to allow us to continue to walk in obedience. And God does so in a variety of ways. He uses words from a concerned brother. He uses encouragement from a a, a caring sister to allow us to continue to to do the things he's called us to do. And he allows the, the instruments of his grace, reading the Bible, praying, these things that he's told us to do, giving, serving, to allow us to continue to to grow and sustain us in our faith and to allow us to experience his goodness. And we need to take advantage of those things. Here's the last thing. Number four, we need God to deliver us from the domain of darkness. All these things are related. God works his victory in Judges 7. 
Verse 15, I think, might be one of the most important verses in the story of, of Gideon. Verse 15, after Gideon hears the telling of the dream and its interpretation, what does he do? He worships. And then God, as the story goes on, we'll talk more about this next week, he, he delivers. Apart from God, what would be true of you and me? We would be stuck in the domain of darkness. But God acts. Ephesians 2, 4, God, it talks about being dead in our trespasses and sin. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. How can we respond? With worship. There's no other way. As we contemplate the deliverance of God, our absolute need for him, the only way that we can respond is with worship. God is infinitely more committed to your salvation than you were in eternity past. God was there, committed to your salvation. Than you are even in the present as you, as you struggle with disobedience. God is, God is committed to your salvation. He's working to, to allow you to be obedient. He's allowing you to continue in the faith. And God is infinitely more committed to your salvation even into eternity future. God and his love is going to continue to sustain you, to preserve you, to present you faultless in Christ. How can we respond to that? Worship. Worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your great salvation. We thank you that you have con convinced us, you've, you've changed our hearts by your by your regeneration through the work of your spirit to allow us to walk in love of you. We pray that you would continue to sustain us for your glory. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.